So once again, we uh, return to Zechariah for a few weeks. The next unit is last part of six, and then seven and eight. So that's uh, a unit in itself. So we're beyond the visions to what now Zechariah is commanded to do. Remember what Zechariah means? God remembers. That's a beautiful term, Zechariah. You know, if you have the name, if you hear the name Zechariah, God remembers. And, uh, and he does. He's remembering his promises since he gave those promises to Adam and Eve in the garden, right, after they had sinned. And he promised a Savior. And in Zechariah 6, 9 through 15, you have a, one of the, the prophecies in the Old Testament that, um, it's one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament to speak of the coming of Christ. One of the most direct prophecies in all the prophets. Often we don't think of this one, but this one is one of the most direct prophecies, prophecy that refers directly to Christ himself. And when was this book written? 500 years before Jesus was born. And the emphasis here is on the crown. The crown, what a crown is, right? It's placed on a king, and you can have crowns within the crown. And that's the word here, is the crowns. The different layers, the crowns within the of the crowns within the crown, the beautiful, and uh, so we hear God's word this morning from Zechariah six, verses nine through fifteen. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go." the same day and enter the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest speak to him saying thus says the Lord of hosts saying behold the man whose name is the branch from his place he shall branch out he shall build the temple of the Lord He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on the throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And really our focus is verses 12 and 13, but we're going to see that in the light of the entire verses 9 through 15. So yeah, Zechariah here at this time is not commanded to see something, but there's a bridge now to something where he has to do. He's seen all the visions, and a lot of the themes in those visions are now uh, carried out in these verses 9 through 15 and what he is to do. What is he to do? Well, what is Zechariah to do? He's told to put a crown on Joshua. By the way, you know what Joshua means? The Lord saves. Okay, it's another name of Jesus. So Joshua. Okay, he's put a crown on Joshua. And then as he puts a crown on Joshua, he's to tell him something. He's to tell him that there is a branch, and in my Bible it's all capitals, B-R-A-N-C-H. There's a branch coming. 
And so in Zechariah 6, verses 12 to 13, it really gives a sevenfold description, or you could say a qualification, of the branch we need. It speaks of the Christ to come. And the whole story, the whole gospel of salvation is in this passage. I think we probably would often miss it. But the entire story of the gospel of of salvation is in this passage. And the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is in this passage. Boy, you know, the Old Testament is so rich, so full, and we have to mine it of all its riches. But here in this passage is a story of the making of a crown, the waiting for the crown, and the receiving of the crown. And God already makes that crown in the garden of Eden with Adam. And then there's that waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, yeah, Jesus comes and he's the receptor. He's the receiver of that crown. So we're going to look at that. This gospel here really is a powerful gospel that's laid out before us here. And we plan to look at those three points. First of all, the making of the crown. We have to go back to the beginning, the beginning of the Bible. And what did God do? God made man the crown of creation. You could say he was wearing God's crown, right? Made in the image of God, called to rule in his name and to have authority over all creation, the animals of the land, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Okay, but Adam, because of his sin and rebellion, what happened? God sent Adam into exile. That means he sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden into death, into the hands of Satan. Understand, outside of Christ, man is a puppet, a puppet king of Satan. And that's what happened. Satan makes man a, pre- makes man a pretend crown. There's a lot of pretend crowns in our world. Right? They're not reflecting and bearing the crown of Christ. But a lot of pretend crowns offering their pretended solutions. That's what you need. You need more money and you'll be happy. You'll need more education and you'll be happy. All those things help, but that's not the solution. We need a king who can, who can subdue those sinful, evil pulses from within us and save us from it and bring us into his glory. God in his grace, because of his promise in Jesus, who will conquer death and Satan. What does he do? He says, I will raise up Israel. I will raise up Israel to life, and she will be my new crown. (laughs) The new crown in all of creation. Wow. You see the grace of God here. In light of his promises given to Jesus, right? Israel will be her new crown, his new crown. And guess what? Through the first Joshua, there's another Joshua. Remember the one who followed Moses. Moses had taken Israel out of Egypt. And now after that comes Joshua. He takes Israel, you could say, out of the exile in the wilderness and brings her into the land of promise. Oh, God's land. Right? She begins to wear his crown. The crown of glory. Such as the nations would covet her and said, we want that kind of life. We want that kind of king. 
God restores his king. And you could say in a certain sense, the Garden of Eden, right? Which was symbolized in the land of Canaan. But then again, what's wrong with man, right? We, we, we make so many messes in our lives. We've become very messy people. Sin makes us messy. We become broken. We just can't subdue our impulses, our sinful impulse. And we need a greater king. There's no king in this world that can save us from ourselves. We need a bigger king. And as a result of the sinful impulses, what does Yahweh do? What does God do? He rejects his king and Israel and throws them into exile. He strips, he strips man of his crown once again. Think of Adam all over again. He strips Israel of her crown. And if you look at Psalm 89, 89, 38 to 40, the psalmist complains, and he's complaining to God. He's complaining to the Lord. He says, Lord, you have been furious with your anointed. God established a relationship, and they just spoiled their relationship with him, forfeited their crown, and now they see it. Lord, you have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the relationship, your covenant with your servant. You have profaned his crown. There it is. You have profaned, you've defiled his crown by casting it to the ground. Does God give up on his people? Oh, no. He remembered the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve, the son, right, of a woman who would be born, who would conquer. He remembers his promise in Jesus. He's faithful, ever faithful. Messy people, people who make a mess of their lives, (laughs) could always go back to him because he's there to forgive and to forgive and bring his wandering child back. And so what does God do? He raises another Joshua. That's what we see here. Another Joshua. And this is after another exile. Through that Joshua, God. Again, Joshua means what? God saves. Okay? Through that Joshua, God saves his people from exile, brings them back where? Into the land. And he wants his people. He restores, you could say, the crown upon his people. In grace, what does God do? We saw that in chapter 3. In grace, what does God do to Joshua? He cleanses him. He consecrates him. He commissions him. Okay? And he restores him. He restores his people to life. Right? Saves them from death. Restores them to life. You know, and there, there they receive the compassion and the love and the grace and the forgiveness. All those beautiful things of the Lord. Those are the crowns of God on his people. The God who, who comes to his messy people and cleanses them and beautifies them. We now come here to this story, the making of the crown. That story of the making of the crown continues. Verses 9 through 11. What does the Lord tell Zechariah to do? He says, now you go, there's a house in Jerusalem, and in that house is a man by the name of Josiah. We don't really know who this Josiah is, but he was one of those guys who made a mess of his lives, and he's come back to the Lord. You go to Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and it's very likely that he was a craftsman or a goldsmith, and Zechariah was told to go to his house with the, the gifts that he had received, Okay, Zechariah is the one who received the gifts 
from those foreigners, right? They were Jewish foreigners, but they were still far off, far away. But they come all the way, bringing, bearing gifts of silver and gold and bring it to Zechariah. Three captives. They're called captives here. Cap, when you think of captives, think of those who've made messiness, messes out of their lives. Haldai, Tobijah, Jediah. And so we might say, what's the point of these names? Well, it was important enough for God to mention them. Right? You notice that every person in the kingdom of God is important to him. Your name is important to him. Nobody else may recognize it. We walk away, we probably won't even remember these names. And who's named after these people anyway? But not in God's book. They're mentioned in scripture because of their gifts of silver and gold. Who does that remind you of? The Magi. Hey, the Magi come and bear gifts. And who do they bring the gifts to? To Jesus when he was born. There's something really special and awesome going on here. God's spirit is at work in these three men and in Josiah. They come, not just on their own, but they come as representatives of the Jewish community who are still living far off in exile. And they're there because of all their sins. But you know what? In spite of all their sins and all the messes they made in their lives, what do you see here? You see here that you, you see their faith. Right? You see their faith in God's promises in Christ. Right? The promises of Jesus to come, of life. They can't look at themselves, but they know there is a greater one coming, the one who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew about Jesus, maybe not the same way as we do, but they had his promises, and they show their faith by investing. Investing, yes, silver and gold into the kingdom of God. It's already here, right? Talk about the body of Christ and investing in her. Well, they're investing. And now Zechariah is told to take their gift of silver and gold and bring it to Josiah, who will probably smelt the gold and silver, and, and out of it was he make a beautiful crown. Now, in our version, it talks about an elaborate crown, but literally it's plural, crowns. Not two, three crowns, but one crown, crowns. Many crowns in that crown. Know that song? Crown him with many crowns. It's a double-layered, triple-layered crown with many different rings, silver and, and gold. Next question. Who is normally crowned in the Old Testament? Kings. But now, hey, there's a switch here. Zechariah's commanded to set the crown on whose head? The priest. Joshua. Why is that? Well, perhaps one reason may be that because Joshua was cleansed and restored, now he's sanctifying the crown which had been defiled in the exile. But I think there's more to it here than that. There's more. Because you remember from Genesis 3, or sorry, from Zechariah 3, verse 8 in the vision, after Joshua was cleansed and restored, Joshua and his fellow priests were symbolic of things to come. What's it say there in 3, verse 8? God was going to bring his branch. They were the guarantee that the branch was coming. And so the crown on Joshua's head is a guarantee that the branch is to come. 
But it says more. The branch to come is who? The final Joshua. The final Yeshua. There'll be no more Joshua's or Yeshua's. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to be both priest and king. Never was that ever before in the Old Testament. Adam was prophet, priest, and king in one. That was because of sin. It was divided. But it's going to come all together in Christ again. He's the priest king. And we're going to find out why he needs to be both priest and king. But he's going to bring us from a far, bring us out of a far greater exile. What is that exile? Sin. Right? The exile from sin. He's going to take us out of the exile of sin and what? And bring us into a new land, a new creation. Joshua 1, Joshua 2, Joshua 3. Exile land, exile, I say land, exile. Exile land, exile land. The crown. The crown tainted by sin is ready to be taken up again. By whom? It only stayed on Joshua for a few seconds. <laughs> but it was on Joshua because there's a greater Joshua coming who will bear the crown. Right? The future righteous king, when he comes, that's going to be taken up by him. And what about this king? He will be holy. That's the king we need because we're not. Okay, He will not defile his crown. We, by our sin, defile everything. We need a king who can save us from that. And none of the kings were able to do that before Jesus came. Every king you read in the Bible, you follow the ways of the Lord, but. You follow the ways of the Lord, but. You follow the ways of the Lord, but. We need a king. We need a king to clean us up and to restore us, right? We need his grace. By our works, we're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to continue being dirty. We need a king. So yeah, the making of the crown really reflects what's going on through the entire Old Testament. But here, 500 years before Jesus, it becomes the waiting. It's been waiting along as well, but now in a more special sense. This elaborate crown did not remain on Joshua's head like we heard. The time of Jesus coming. Look at verse 14. This crown, which Zechariah made from silver and gold, was to be kept where? In the temple. That is the embassy of the kingdom. Still today, the church is the embassy of the kingdom. The most special place of God in all creation. The church of Jesus Christ. Civil authorities may may say something different about it, but never mind what they think. Think what God thinks. It's the most special place in the universe. And that's where that crown is kept. Not on Capitol Hill, but in the temple. Oh, that temple? Didn't even compare it anyway to Solomon's temple. It was just a dingy little thing. Oh, but boy, what it represented. It's waiting for the rightful wearer, And it was in the temple as a memorial, you could say as a remembrance to these three captives as well as to Josiah, the goldsmith. Every time the people would come in, it was a faith-strengthening sign. Oh yeah, you know what? Our lives are not what they should be. Our lives are messy. We need one who can rescue us. And there is one that's coming, the long-awaited king. He's coming. Every time they saw the crown, they didn't see a head under it yet. 
Is this still there? There, without a person under it. But there's a person coming who's going to be enthroned with a crown. They were waiting and waiting and waiting for that. And more than that, more than that, okay, these gifts that they brought are representing those, okay, representing those from far away from God, function as a sign that people from all the nations, oh yeah, people from all nations will come to Christ and bring gifts to crown his head, right? Will bring gifts to build his church. They're going to invest in his kingdom, such as the glory and the majesty of his kingdom compared to the empires of dirt out there. They come and they rise and they fall, rise and fall. But Christ's kingdom is forever. That's the kind of faith these people live. Their lives weren't holy in themselves, but they look at the one who could make them holy, and that's Jesus. They were waiting for him, the crown and the waiting. Look at verse 15. Even those from afar off will come and build the temple of the Lord. That, that's a prophecy of Ephesians 2. Right? People who come from far and near to Christ. But notice in the symbolic crowning of Joshua, Zerubbabel, you know who was the builder of the temple? He was the king, you could say, but he falls into the background. The coming one, the branch takes center stage. And with him, another temple, a church comes into view, his body. And that brings us to the prophecy of verses 12 and 13, the sevenfold description of the coming branch. It talks about his person, his office, a priest and king, and his mission that he's going to accomplish. Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, what's he say first? Behold the man whose name is the branch. Behold the man. From whose mouth have you heard that before? Pilate. Pilate. Behold the man. Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate was mocking him. Behold the man. He used these very words in a mocking way to present the beaten Christ to the Jews of Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem. This man is the one. He's your savior from your terrible life of sin. He's the savior. He's the one. Behold the man. Pilate didn't know what he was saying. His name is the branch. Why the name branch? You know, scripture compares to the house of David. Think about the land, the garden, the garden of Eden. It was filled with trees. David is compared to the tree. But he was cut down in judgment. God cut down the tree with the axe. Threw David and the Israelites into exile. And what was left? A dead stump. Just a dead stump. It looked like the end. And yet from this dead stump, what do you see? A resurrection. A branch. You ever see a root with a branch? And it has sometimes little leaves on there? There's just signs of life. There's new growth. And Isaiah speaks of that too, just as Zechariah does. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Whose roots? David's roots. Right? God's going to restore that garden again. The prophet Jeremiah, the days are coming, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. Apostle Paul, he talks about Christ who was born of whom? The seed of David. 
according to the flesh. Next thing. Third thing. From his place he shall branch out. What was his place? Bethlehem. The cross. Humble beginnings. And yet, you see his glory from the empty grave. Humble beginnings, yes. The manger, the cross, the grave. And yet the empty grave is his glory. And from that empty grave, he will branch out. And his church will become his tree. The only living tree in the entire world. The tree which consists of peoples from all different tongues, languages, and nations. And what is he going to do? Fourth thing, he shall build the temple of the Lord. As a matter of fact, it's so, so important he says it twice. Yes, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Sometimes we want to really emphasize something, we say it twice, don't we? But the emphasis is on he, not we. We don't do it. He does. Think about what Christ says in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, death shall never overcome it. You know, the church is the only place on earth that will never die out. Every other institution will die out. But the church of Jesus Christ will remain. The gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not overcome it. And then it goes on to say, number five, he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. Ah, he's the one that's going to be the person underneath that beautiful crown, the crown of crowns. He's going to wear it. He's going to rule the entire earth. Now, he's saying will, because we're speaking from Zachariah's day. Today he is wearing it, but from that point, he was, uh, they were prophesying. And if you look at Acts 5.31, it happened. And Peter proclaims the glory of his conquest, more powerful, more stronger than any king. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. To do what? To use bombs and guns? No. To give repentance. That is a powerful thing. We can't subdue ourselves. We can't subdue the jealousies and the hatred and the anger within ourselves. Jesus can. You go to him for it. He's the one that gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Those are the powerful ways in which he accomplishes his mission in this world. Notice that priest, or sorry, king. But in order to do that, he has to die, right? So he has to be priest and king. He can't only be king. He also be priest. Number six, he shall be priest on his throne. He's not only king, but also priest. He needs, first of all, to forgive sin in order to conquer sin as king. And that's what he came to do on the cross. You know, the one who forgives sin is also the king who can break sin in our lives. The power is hold in our lives. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, think of behold the man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what's the practical result of all of this? The one who saves us from exile, the one who brings us into the land, the result, <clears throat> you see in the last verse, verse 13 of that prophecy, the result of his sacrifice and rule, atonement and rule is this, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. That means there's now peace between a holy God and a sinful people. 
this peace which God secures for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world does not know this peace. Oh, they have some sort of external uh, pretend peace. But that peace which comes as a result of the repentance of sins and forgiveness in Christ. That is a powerful peace. And Ephesians 2 talks about that. He himself, Jesus himself is our peace. And he himself came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Wow. You know, if these people back then lived in our day, they would be jumping up and down for joy. They wouldn't, you guys have this? <laughs> they came today. They were waiting for it. They were waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting for that joyous day when this would be fulfilled. That day when the branch would be both priest and king, the bearer of our sins and the conqueror of our sins. You know, here, Scripture talks about how Christ is the true Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek was both priest and king? Well, he's the true Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and at the same time, the great high priest who lives forever. Our calling is this. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Behold him. And behold him, why? Because he has come. There's a day coming when he will come in all his glory, right? He will return with the crown on his head from the, from the power of heaven. I think I'm losing my uh, pages here. Um, in the glory of, from the glory and power of heaven. But notice here the receiving of the crown. That brings us to today. How did he gain his crown kept in the temple that was kept for him? Recall that on the Sunday before that Jesus went to the cross, where did Jesus ride into? Jerusalem. On a donkey. And where did he go? He went into the temple. He went into the temple of Jerusalem to receive Zechariah's crown. The crown of Zechariah. The crown that Zechariah put on Joshua. But what happened? Instead of being crowned, Jesus finds the temple defiled, dirty, unfit. And so he cleanses it. He throws out the people, the sheep, the animals. And the Jewish leaders respond in rage. They want to kill him. They kill him. What was the outcome? Instead of being given Zachariah's crown, he is given a crown of thorns. A crown of thorns, really a symbol of Genesis 3. And he's crucified on the cross to be the king of the Jews. Dead. What's left of the branch? Dead. It seems like God's promise has died out. It's finished. No more life. The Son of God, very God of very God, what was going on here? In His love and grace for you, He entered the very depths of the exile. Even hell itself, hell which we deserve. That's how terribly wicked and sinful we are by nature, that he goes to that depth, going into exile, going to hell, carrying the agonies of hell upon himself, bearing God's infinite wrath and punishment 
for our sin. Behold the man who did this for us sinners. Sinners who need his grace and love. Behold the man who did this for you. Beaten, bruised, crucified, dead, buried. No more branch. Dead. What's left of the stump? Let alone of the crown. But God is the God of the resurrection, isn't he? There's hope. Glory to the God of all grace. His sacrifice on the cross was a priestly sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. And this branch was raised to life from the dead. Through his death and resurrection, death and Satan are conquered. By repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, your Savior and King, he brings you, right? he brings us out of the depths of our sin, out of the depths of darkness, out of the depths of our exile, out of the depths of the fact we can never subdue our own sinful passions. He's the one who is able to bring us out of that and bring us into the garden once again. That's where Revelation ends. See what I mean? This passage has everything from Genesis to Revelation in here. This world needs a king. The kings of this world won't do. Throwing money at problems won't do. Throwing education at people won't do. They're helpful. But we need a king who can save people from their unruly passions. People, a king who can save people from committing violence on the streets, from destroying people with machetes, from pointing guns. We need a king who can spare us, who can save us from anger from within, from jealousy from within. There's not a king in our land that can do that. We need Christ. We need one who can bear the crown for us. King Jesus. And as King of kings and Lord of lords, he today wears the crown of many crowns. Look at Revelation 19 verse 12. Crown him with many crowns. When Christ returns in his power and glory, he will work as he has always worked, although he will work with finality. All who did not trust in Christ for their salvation, he will cast away into exile. Think back to Adam and Eve being cast in exile, but God still came to him. But then he will cast away into exile, into the burning lake of fire, forever and ever and ever. Behold the man whose name is the branch, our king, our priest. But all who embrace Christ and God's promises through repentance and faith, there is a promise of a new creation. This world will be made into a new creation, the garden of God, filled with trees once again. And he's filling it with the tree, the tree of his people, tree that speaks many different languages and has many different colors and many different names. And we'll experience that joy of the fellowship with him forever and ever. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of his prophecy. But you know what? Just one more thing. He's a fulfillment, but in him... You are also fulfillments, right? You wear his crown. And I think we have to see that. It's not just Christ wearing the crown, but his body, of whom he is head, wears his crown. Not our own crowns. Those are pretend crowns. We get rid of them. But his crown, which bears his glory. 
We'll just look at a couple little ways in which that is, is seen in our lives. First of all, Psalm 104, 103 verse 4 says, He redeems our life from the pit of destruction. And what does He crown us with? Love, loving kindness and compassion. That's what He crowns His people with. Loving kindness and compassion. This is beautiful because when He crowns us with that, then His people become loving and compassionate people. That's what the world needs. They need to see that there is grace and love. And they need to see that in the lives of God's people. He crowns us with loving kindness and and compassion. He's the only one who can save you for this by his sacrifice on the cross for sinners. That's one way. He crowns you. He gives you this. He transforms. He changes so that the world begins to see in the midst of their deserts, there's a tree. (laughs) There's a tree bearing fruit. And they're wearing the crown of Jesus. Second of all, you're a fulfillment in another way. You're foreign investors. <laughs> you're all, we're, we're all foreign investors. None of us are Jews, I don't think, background. And in those days, it was Jews who came, and Zechariah says, yeah, you know, there's going to be foreigners who are going to join that house-building project, and that's the Gentiles, foreigners. And so, yes, today we are, as foreigners, we are honored to build Christ's church in Him. That's the honor he gives to his people. Even those from afar, says verse 15, will come and build the temple of the Lord. That's happening today. Happening today with all the hardships, martyrdom, uh, sins, Christ is building. From afar, in Zechariah's day, captives brought gifts of silver and gold for the Lord's house and his kingdom. There's great blessing. And that's where our future lies. There's no other future except the future that Christ gives. It's only in Christ. It's only in his kingdom. Lasting, solid investments. Certainly we may make our investments in in this life. But it's always under the umbrella of Christ. His kingdom. For the sake of him. And you know, we show that we believe. We show that we believe in God's promise of the fullness of his kingdom to come. How do we show that? Just as the way that these captives did. Through gifts and offerings. Through the sharing of our talents. Through serving one another within the body of Christ. That's really the litmus test of showing that we really believe that we have strong faith in the fact that God's going to keep his promise. We believe it. We're going to act upon it. Ephesians 2.19 says, Therefore you are no longer strangers or foreigners, fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You know, Isaiah spoke about those days. He said, In that day, that's our day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem, uh, a diadem of beauty for us. Imagine, you are his crown of glory, his diadem of beauty. The prophecy is cut with the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. Think of verse 12. It begins with the Lord of hosts. In verse 15, it ends with the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. I think of those little words, or those words, they're big words, but all the children know. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But who is strong? Jesus. One pastor puts it this way. We're physically fragile, 
Any of us can go any moment. We're spiritually frail. But who do we belong to? The one who is strong. The Lord of hosts. We have our enemies. The devil. The world. Our flesh. But they are no match for God. For Christ, our mighty Lord. And so, yes, today we celebrate the crowning of a greater Joshua who is yet to come. Let us continue to live by faith and continue to build and let us crown him with many crowns, a lamb upon his throne. This is really real historical. He is carrying out his plan and he will bring out his plan to completion when he returns.